Welcome to the Funny Because It's True podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McGeehan. The show is recorded live every other Tuesday at 10 p.m. at the Second City Hollywood in Los Angeles, California. Storytellers are either predetermined or chosen randomly on the night of the show to tell a true story based on different themes. And this podcast is a mixed bag of some of my favorites. The theme of this episode is random. Three very different stories involving NASA, bloody feet, and Wrangler jeans. Pepper Berry saves Canada from nuclear disaster. Brandy Stillwell will stop at nothing for clean dishes. And I recount my first and only fist fight. But let's not dawdle. First up, Pepper Berry. At the age of 10, I saved the entire nation of Canada from nuclear disaster. Um, I was a big science buff when I was a kid. It started with uh, my relatives. I had an Uncle Harold who was a geologist. Uh, he worked for the oil company, um, looking for oil for them. And he taught me about uh, igneous rocks and sedimentary rocks, and we would go looking for fossils around the lake and things like that, which led me to set up a geological laboratory in my bedroom at the age of seven, where I had a microscope and I studied rocks and I wrote very scientific things on papers and I filed them away in my laboratory. <laughs> um, this also down the road uh, at the ripe old age of like seven and a half, eight, I got into archaeology very deeply and I would uh, look for artifacts and um, from reading National Geographic and things like that years before Indiana Jones was in on this whole thing. And I immediately set up an archaeological laboratory in my bedroom, and I started uh, digs in my backyard. <laughs> Huge digs funded by my parents. Um, this led me to one family reunion where I just started to get into uh, space stuff. And I loved astronauts and things like that. And at one of my family reunions, my mom introduced me to not one but two uncles who worked for NASA. I had one uncle who worked at the NASA in Maryland, and I had another uncle who worked at the NASA in Houston. Uh, one, like, designed this, the nose cone of the space shuttle, and the other one uh, did the tail fin of the F-16. And uh, that was very cool, so I started to get into uh, uh, space, and I told my dad one time that it's like, I would really like um, a picture. It would be cool if I had a picture of Neil Armstrong, who was, like, one of my favorite astronauts. And very unrepublican of him, he said, well, why don't you write to your government? It's like your tax dollars who paid for all that. They should send you a free photo. And so he procured me uh, the address to the Huntsville, Alabama, NASA. And I sat down and pinned off a very long pleading letter like any eight-year-old would write. Like, Please, sir, if you can find it in your heart to send me a Neil Armstrong photograph, I'd be much obliged. And I... Sealed up an envelope, and I gave it to my dad, and he told me that he would mail it the next day at the office. And I promptly forgot about it for about two weeks because I was very busy with the dig I had going on in the backyard that was possibly losing funding. And I'd, <laughs> I was having some problems, logistic problems, because I had dug all the way down to the city water main, and I couldn't get around it, and I knew there were dinosaur bones underneath it. <laughs> so, could have happened. Um, so two weeks went by, and out of nowhere, my mom calls me and says, uh, Pepper, come into the living room. You have some mail. So I run into the living room, and there is a large brown envelope with the NASA logo stamped on it. And for an eight-year-old, getting mail is huge. 
and it was from NASA. So I grabbed it, and I ran in my room, and I ripped it open, and I reach in, and I pull out an 8 by 10 glossy photograph of Neil Armstrong for free. <laughs> and then I reached in again, and I pulled out an 8 by 10 glossy photograph of the entire Apollo 11 crew with Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. And I reached in again, and I pulled out a stack of mission reports from Apollo 11 that told about everything they brought back and what they'd done and logistics and the schematics. And I reached in again, and there was a sticker from NASA. And I reached in again, and there was an actual official patch of Apollo 11 mission control that the astronauts wore on their jackets, and I had one. Wow. And on the back of one of the mission reports were the addresses to all seven NASA facilities in the United States. And I wrote them all. <laughs> It was like the North Pole at Christmas time. I was like sending out let- letters were flying out of my laboratory <laughs> daily. And my dad would have stacks of letters waiting for him on his sink when he was getting ready like, for work in the morning. I would just be like, this is the next batch going out. <laughs> and I had a list of things that I wanted. I was requesting uh, photographs of Apollo 15. I wanted a photograph of David R. Scott, who was my favorite uh, astronaut. And I wanted Viking Mars. How's the Viking Mars mission going? I needed to see that. And I needed maps of the moon. And I needed this thing. And I got it all. At the age of eight, no one got more mail at my house than me. <laughs> I had packages arriving daily. I had schematics. I had mission reports from the Viking. I had Voyager mission reports. If you guys remember that uh, scene from Apollo 13 where the scrubbers go out and they can't breathe right, so they come down there like, we've got to make this fit into that using nothing but that. <laughs> I had the plans to that. <laughs> All laid out in the Apollo 13 mission thing. So at this point, I was reaching about the age of nine. I had uh, reached a huge capacity of knowledge on space, which I thought warranted um, an astronaut position. I made out my resume. I included a little photo from my elementary school and shipped it off to NASA, which to this day, I have yet to hear back from them. (laughs) Although I do ask my mom every now and again, have you checked the mailbox? Just in case. Um, It was about one of these times where I had, I also tracked, Everything. I had maps of the United States on my wall that had the actual, like, the wave things of the satellites going by. And I'd, when I learned about positions of satellites, I'd put them on my maps. Um, which one day my dad brought in a news article of a Russian satellite that was decaying in orbit. And it was going to hit either the United States or Canada. For sure. And on top of that, it was a nuclear fuel satellite. Those crazy Russians. And it was going to be a disaster. And so I immediately shut down my geology laboratory for a week while I worked on this problem. And so I started tracking. I actually had known about this satellite. An eight-year-old or a nine-year-old had known about this satellite, and I had it up on my board, and I started uh, reading articles every day. They'd come in because it was actually a big deal at the time, and it actually turned out it was going to hit Canada. And so I started uh, tracking it on my little board, and it went through the atmosphere Debris went everywhere, hundreds of miles across Canada, and it crashed, and they lost it. So the Russians wanted it back. The United States wanted to see it. The Canadians just wanted it out, (laughs) and they could not find it anywhere. So Pepper goes to work. I get down my maps and my protractor, because that's 
all I knew to do is like when you see pirates when they're doing, and they just do that thing with the triangle and they just go like that. I did that quite a bit. Now, I don't know what NASA was working with. I'm sure they had a lot of technology. I had a map from AAA that my dad had got me. <laughs> um, so I cornered it about from where they had told me where the debris had been found to where the trajectory of my little wave thing was. And I thought it was about in this vicinity and there was a bunch of rivers right there. And I named them all and I wrote a letter to NASA saying like, I think it's possibly in one of these rivers. And since Canada is very cold, it's probably iced over. And it probably punched a hole in the ice. And it's down in the water. And that's why you guys can't find it. It could have even frozen over. And I sent off the letter. And I never heard from them again. Although a couple of weeks later, the Canadian team did find the satellite. In about the vicinity I pointed out. <laughs> in a river. <laughs> now did... NASA get my letter and send it on the Canadian team and this is what saved the entire country? We will never know. Did I probably save the entire nation of Canada? Yes, I probably saved them. <laughs> Next up, Brandy Stillwell. Okay, I was in college and um, I had these roommates, uh, Beth and Tammy. And Beth and Tammy were very dirty girls. And, <laughs> um, so... The kitchen was always so filthy and vile, and it never failed that there was always a dirty dish in the sink, and the cups were always, there was never any cups. And without fail, I would always clean, I would always do dishes, and one day I came home from class, and I remember I was wearing a misfortune outfit, I was wearing black tights, uh, some kind of like jazz shoes, and a skirt. And I came home, and I was parched from walking down the camp meal. And I kicked my shoes off, walked into the kitchen, and again, it's just, there's not a cup to be seen. And I'm like, no, I'm going to stay on my ground. I am not going to do the dishes this time. It's not going to happen. So I opened up the cabinets, and I stepped back, and I look up, and I see one lonely cup in the very, very far reaches. And I'm still, I'm like, what, five, seven and a half, but still kind of short. So I open up the cabinet below and where the pots and pans are, and I go ahead and I start to climb. And I get up to the top, and I remember with my right foot, I could just touch it. I could touch that cup. And the cabinet, the shelf gave way, and my foot went. And I fall. Pots and pans come down on me. Now... I'm from a very athletic family. Like, my mom was in, like, the second wave of, like, a league of their own. And so <laughs> she was, like, when we were kids, it was, like, she was coaching any other kid. They were, like, oh, my God, are you okay? But if it was my sister and I, it's, like, you get up. You beat the ball. You're fine. So I start walking around my apartment, and I'm, I'm limping, and I start pacing. And I start going up and down the hallway, and I end up in my room, and I'm pacing back and forth. And by, like, the third time in my room, I have, like, this white rug on my hardwood floors. And I notice that there's, like, red stuff on it. And I'm like, Beb and Tammy have been in here, and they're drinking Kool-Aid again. <laughs> and so I'm, like, pacing back and forth. And um, I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I'm okay. I be the ball. Be the ball. And I, I start to I get one leg out of my tights, and I'm fine. And I swear to you, as I'm pulling off my right foot, and I'm pulling, I'm in so much pain. I would say on a scale of like one to ten, it was like maybe an eight of like a perfect footprint of skin <laughs> that oh, came yeah. off with my tights. Oh, 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 oh. And then 
it like waited a beat and then it just gushed and I'm like oh and so what do I do I, I call my mom two and a half hours away um freaking out which is not a nice thing to do to your parent when you're like bleeding to death I'm not bleeding to death it's your foot but my mom thinks I'm gonna die and so she's like get in the shower and so I'm in the shower and I'm like with this bloody foot and she calls my friend Billier and she's like Brandy's dying you have to get over to her apartment now and I'm like freaking out in the in the shower and my friend Bill comes in and I still have like I, I do have on my skirt and my sweater, but I'm just soaking wet. And um, he's like, let me take you to the uh, KU hospital. So we get on to the, the hospital. And I learned one thing on this trip. Um, no one's allowed to touch my feet. And um, we got into the, the doctor's office, and the doctor tried to touch my foot. And I immediately just checked him. And I'm like, oh, I didn't mean to. And he's like, no, so it happens. And I went and he tried to touch my foot again. And I kicked him really hard. And this time, blood went like on the the wall. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. And they're like trying to shoot me up. But I'm like the Hulk. And I'm like, no, I can't. This pain, no. And so they literally flipped me over and made my friend Bill come sit on top of me while they like bandaged my foot up because they're like there's really nothing to stitch up and they're like that part of your foot it heal and so I'm all like have this huge like bucket on my foot and we get home and my friend drops me off because he had like an exam the next morning I'm like no it's fine it's fine and I ended up walking back in the kitchen and the first thing I did I did the dishes and um which is also why I live alone to this day And finally, me, Kevin McGeehan. In 1982, Wrangler Jeans unrolled their campaign where cowboys wore their jeans. The commercial went like this. A big cowboy walks into a bar. Underneath him is this song. Here comes Wrangler, and he's one tough customer, and he knows what he likes when he sees it. Bunch of girls in the back, Wrangler! (laughs) My best friend in high school made the mistake of wearing Wrangler jeans one day to school, and as he walked off the bus, a group of us started singing, Here comes Wrangler, and he's... I've been in one fist fight in my life, and it was with Wrangler. Uh, Wrangler and I were best friends, and we, uh, we got along really, really well. And about midway through junior year, his parents announced, we're moving to New Jersey. And Wrangler and I were devastated. Wrangler and I were on the tennis team together, and he was fantastic. He was the number one seed. He was the guy to beat in our county. I was number six on a five-man team. (laughs) We had some great times together. We we shared so many memories, and we thought, we don't want to give this up. What can we do to make sure that you don't have to leave? Live with me and my mother. Run it by your parents. I'll run it by my mom. We will get this working out. So I talked to my mom. Can Wrangler come live with us? No. Can Wrangler come live with us? No. Eventually, yes. And 
Wrangler's parents, they were totally cool with it because that's one less kid they got to deal with in the move. So Wrangler comes and lives with us, and he's there, and it is fantastic. I'm an only child. It was like having a brother. We'd stay up late. My mother would go to sleep, and we'd stay up late just watching television and uh, talking about girls we liked in uh, his bedroom, and it was fantastic. And then it started to go south because in his mind, his parents were gone. So he didn't have any sort of parental supervision. So he'd go out to whenever he wanted to come home. And he'd just do whatever. And he'd go over to uh, these guys' house who went to another school, and they played tennis as well, and they had that in common. But whatever, <laughs> I had to go to work. And he would come back and tell me brand-new racial slurs that he had learned that night from them. And I started getting a little jealous. I'm not going to lie. Because he's my friend. He's my roommate in my house with me. And then I found out this tidbit. My mother alerted me to the fact that his parents never even talked to her about this, didn't give any money, and didn't even make a phone call to say, hey, thanks for watching our 17-year-old son while we move out of state. And that kind of got me. That kind of annoyed me. And then Wrangler started really taking advantage of my mother. Just staying out, doing whatever he wanted. It didn't matter. He didn't really obey any of the rules of the house. And then one day, we're both in the house, and he goes in the bathroom, and he comes out of the bathroom, and then he and I are talking for about 20 minutes. At the end of that 20 minutes, I say, oh, I'm going to go take a shower. And he looks at me and says, no, I'm not done in there yet. I said, what? He said, I'm not done in there yet. You can't, no. Screw you. I'm going to go do it right now. I said, no, you're not. And suddenly, he and I are squaring off. He's holding a magazine in his hand. And then we go back and forth. It escalates to FUs and FUs until eventually he hits me with the magazine. And then it's on. And he grabs me, and we begin to fight. And then he puts me in a headlock, and it's over. It's over immediately. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely overwhelmed by his strength. Once again, he's number one. I'm number six of five. So I don't know what to do. He's got me, and he's holding me, and he's really going. We're both really angry at this point. So I take the only tactic that I could think of off the top of my head. I played dead. I went completely limp. <laughs> And when he let go, I kept the ruse going that I fell to the floor like I was dead. I kept my eyes closed. And, and he came over to me. And uh, later he told me, I had no idea what to do. I didn't know I was going to tell your mom. Like, oh, I killed him over a, going, a bathroom dispute. Um, but I felt him touch my shoulder ever so slightly. And that was my cue to jump up and flaccidly hit him in the arm. <laughs> and then we laughed at just how stupid we both were. But I knew one thing, that that day I beat Wrangler, no matter how tough of a customer he may have been. That's it. That's our show. Special thanks to our storytellers Pepper Berry and Brandy Stillwell. Also thanks to Josh Callahan, Mark Orzeka, the Second City Hollywood, and the Comedy Podcast Network for producing the show. You can like Funny Cause It's True on Facebook. 
to find out upcoming show dates and themes. All the past episodes are available for free download on the Comedy Podcast Network and iTunes. While on iTunes, feel free to leave a rating or a comment about the show. The more comments help the show grow to a broader audience on iTunes, plus it appeases my staunch desire for approval and acceptance. If you would ever like to see the live show, Funny Because It's True is every other Tuesday at 10 p.m. at the Second City Hollywood, located on Historic and Sex Shop Laden Hollywood Boulevard. So come out, put your name in contention, and maybe you'll get chosen to tell a true story on stage, and from there, get chosen to be on the podcast. My name is Kevin McGeehan. Thanks for listening. receive this transmission from the Comedy Podcast Network. For more shows, visit ComedyPodcastNetwork.com.